Hello, this is Chris Stevenson, host of the podcast series, Religion in the American Experience. Due to the events of last week at the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C., we will not publish, as we usually do, our normally scheduled episode on Monday, January 18th. Instead, over the next two weeks, we will convene a panel of American religious history scholars to discuss how the history of religion and politics in the United States can help us better understand and react to the storming of the Capitol on January 6, 2021. The recording of this discussion will be released Monday, January 25th on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. I look forward to meeting you then. Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. If anyone thinks about religion in America, which thinking is absolutely essential to understand the nation, one of the first things that comes to mind, whether one is religious or not, is Billy Graham. And even if that's not the case, because of his outsized 20th century influence, we should think about Billy Graham. Born in 1918 on a dairy farm in North Carolina, Billy Graham later would be an advisor to American presidents, travel the world, including behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War, and fill stadiums to witness his preaching. Our discussion about this towering figure on the American historical stage will help all of us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and we trust that as a result, listeners will see how indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its ability to fulfill its purposes in the world. Today, we have with us Grant Wacker, Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Christian History at Duke University and author of America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. He specializes in the history of evangelicalism, Pentecostalism, world missions, and American Protestant thought. He is the author or co-editor of seven books, including Heaven Below, Early Pentecostals and American Culture, Religion in American Life, and Religion in Nineteenth-Century America. Dr. Wacker has served as a senior editor of the quarterly journal Church History, Studies in Christianity and Culture, and is past president of the Society for Pentecostal Studies and of the American Society of Church History. We encourage listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and register for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Grant, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. Before we dive into the details, uh, Grant, can you tell us why you chose the title 
you did? Well, uh, at the uh, most obvious level, in a sense, is that um, when the Billy Graham Library was dedicated in 2007, uh, George Bush, uh, former president George H.W. Bush, was present, and uh, he called uh, Graham America's pastor. And so the label was uh, uh, publicized uh, quite prominently at that point, but the label had often been used. And uh, in newspapers and in magazines, and you know, for for many years, um, right. in, in a lot of different contexts. And then the subtitle uh, is prominent: Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. Uh, that's that's a, a pretty powerful statement. Why did you choose that? Well, I have to be honest. Uh, my editor chose that. Uh, Got it. So I I asked her, "Are we? Sh- are you sure we want to go with that? That is a pretty powerful statement." And she said, "Yeah, I'll go for it." Okay. Uh, so um, yeah, I, I it, that may be a bit too muscular, uh, but uh, what I did want to suggest, I was willing to go with it. What I did want to suggest is that um, he helped articulate uh, a set of religious values. Uh, they came to define the evangelical movement, which, uh, you know, is 60 million, 80 million strong, depending on how we define it. Right. But you have a segment that large. Right. And he comes to define it. it that did seem like a reasonable. Right. Tell us in brief, why should Americans who are not evangelicals, including those who are not Christian, uh, should pick up a book that says, America's pastor, someone who shaped the nation, just really briefly, and then we'll dive into some. De- we'll get into the details. Yeah. I just thought that would be a good question to ask. Well, that that it is a terrific question, and uh, and again, I I would say that Graham helped create a public space uh, for religion, uh, re- uh, certainly for evangelicals. Uh, he helped bring that he helped bring them out of the closet. Uh, in the 1950s into a place of prominence and respectability. And uh, that those numbers have grown uh, continually uh, since then. And, uh, and, and, and so hum, almost by any reasonable measure of things, uh, Graham is important by virtue of the public space he helped create, but also because of his associations with presidents of the United States. Uh, it was conspicuous. He was always there, and the press loved it. And all these photographs of, you know, Graham on the golf course with Eisenhower and Johnson and Nixon. It goes on and on. So he brings a certain brand label of faith into public consciousness. Okay, fair enough. Grant, give us a short biography of Billy Graham, bringing us up through. The 1949 Los Angeles Crusade, which made him a prominent national figure. High-level bio up to that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the short of it is is that he he was a pretty inconspicuous figure until then, and uh, born on a dairy farm in uh, North Carolina, in a very remote rural area. Um, his sister uh, told me that they would probably not see more than one car a day. Uh, pass. Uh, he attended a rural high school for three years, which was customary in those days. Uh, he was a C student, um, not terribly good, not terribly bad either, just an ordinary kid. Um, he went off to Bob Jones University, which in those days was Bob Jones College, and it was in Tennessee. 
He went there for a semester. Uh, he did not fit in, didn't like it. Transferred to Florida, Florida Bible Institute. And he did fit in and he loved it. But again, a very inconspicuous school in Florida. Um, then he went to Wheaton College uh, for a better education and for a uh, respectable uh, bachelor's degree. And Lee, as, as, as the jargon goes, Wheaton is the Harvard of the evangelical world. It was then, still is. In fact, around there, they say that Harvard is the Wheaton of uh, the Ivy League. Uh, very fine school. And so uh, Graham uh, uh, did well there. Again, he was not a valedictorian or anything, but he did well enough. After Wheaton, he became a pastor for a year, uh, not successful as a pastor. Um, then he went into Youth for Christ and began to began to spread his wings, so to speak, and traveled all over the U.S., all over Britain, part of the continent, and he began to feel, you know, his calling. Uh, but he didn't really come into national prominence until 1949, the crusade in Los Angeles. Can you give us a few details about that event, how it happened and what happened yeah. because of in it? Yeah. In retrospect, you look at Billy Graham's autobiography, uh, the pair, the chapter on, on um, Los Angeles, he calls turning point. So in his own perspective, uh, which he wrote when he was an old man, uh, he looked back at this very long career, very, you know, celebrated career. And he, he sees 1949 Los Angeles's the point where he ceases to be just a Southern country boy preacher and he has a kind of national prominence. Um, and uh, he went there for three weeks in the fall of 1949. And uh, that was extended to six weeks and then finally to eight weeks. Um, uh, tent uh, pitched the, a, a huge circus tent, uh, reputedly one of the largest in the world, right in downtown Los Angeles. Graham always had an eye for the spectacular. And so right in the center of the town and a big uh, carbon arc light. And uh, at first crowds were very slow to come, but momentum built. And I'd say momentum built uh, three weeks in and for three, uh, two reasons. First is uh, celebrities started to come and they would then give their testimonials. And Graham always understood the power of the testimonial. Testimonies meant more than any theology textbook, all right? And then the second reason he really flourished was because William Randolph Hearst discovered him. And Hearst was the uh, owner of uh, one of the two largest newspaper chains in the nation. And there's no reason to think that Hearst shared Graham's uh, religious views, but he did share Graham's anti-communism. And so Hearst began to... Uh, give Graham prominent coverage in his newspapers. Okay. Thank you for that, uh, that uh, biography of him and bringing us up to that important event. Is it important to, to note for our listeners that, that Graham was also a fuller brush salesman? <laughs> Wasn't, yeah, isn't that well, true? He was a... He was. Yeah. Uh, summer out of high school, 17... Right. Uh, just a 17 year old kid. And he was selling full of brushes door to door in uh, South Carolina. And as the story goes, he sold more full of brushes than anybody else, uh, in the state, uh, that summer. And, right. uh, what's important to note about that, the long range significance. So 
is that he came to the sense that a fuller brushes are really good brushes. And if you have a good product, then market it with all the energy you can. So he was never shy about marketing his message. I mean, use the newspapers, use radio, television, podcasts, use anything available. Right. He said, I got the best product in the world. I'm going to sell it. Yep. Okay. And for our listeners, you used the word testimonials of celebrities at that 1949 crusade uh, event. What do you mean by testimonials? What celebrities said after they were at the crusade and, and would report to the press or what? Yeah. Well, it's several levels. Uh, uh, the most obvious level is that when someone made a commitment to Christ, they would sign a card. And so Graham's um, organizers, counselors would know. So that, so in a sense, they go on record. Okay. And then Graham was quite astute, never shy about asking people who are prominent than to talk, come up and to talk about what, what faith meant to them or their, their conversion experience. Okay. Now, what Graham was always a little vague about, I think, is that very often, more often than not, uh, these were not sky blue conversions. These were people who had grown up in the church and they had strayed. Their faith had grown cold. And they were coming back to the church. So once in a while, though, when he was confronted about this, he would say, look, what's the difference? You're coming to faith from no faith, or if you if you are reviving a faith that has grown cold or dead, died, what's the difference? Right. Um, so okay. people would talk about this. Okay. Thank you. Now, uh, Grant, you write in your book that Graham was not a theologian, but a, quote, craftsman who worked with theological materials, close quote. Would you uh, tell us what his main teachings were and then talk about his delivery and style? That is, paint for us the portrait of Billy Graham as pastor. Uh, Well, first, the main teachings was uh, uh, traditional Protestant evangelical theology, uh, almost boilerplate, you would say, and he made no innovations theologically at all. He, in fact, uh, he trimmed it a lot. He preached a very streamlined gospel, left off a lot of things that a lot of Protestants think are terribly important. For him, the core of the gospel is that the Bible is authoritative. It provides a rule for life, and uh, he wasn't very concerned about the Bible and churches or society. It's a rule for our personal lives. Uh, and uh, Christ uh, died for our sins, rose again. And uh, by appropriating Christ, faith in Christ, bringing, calling Christ into our lives so we can be forgiven of sins and to uh, an, an invigorated life. Graham didn't use the word holiness of life uh, very often, but this is what he was talking about. We can have a new life. We can have a a cleansed life, a better life, and then the life beyond. Uh, that and that was part of the the message. Okay. And when I I think about it, and as I read many letters to Graham, I mean, people literally so it sent millions. And when you think about it, what you see there over and over is that from Graham they gain the sense of a second chance. I messed up my life, and um, this message gives me a second chance. So that was, I would say, the theology and okay. the effect. Um, 
He was uh, not an eloquent preacher, but he was an effective preacher. Um, and uh, his goal always was to connect. And he figured there, if you can't connect, there's no point in preaching. And we know that he connected uh, because of the crowds that came. He probably preached to more people than anyone else in history, with the exception of John Paul II. Um, you know, he preached live to more than 80 million people. Um, he was connecting, and uh, the message was simple. It was dynamic. He preached fast and hard, especially in the beginning. And as time went on, it slowed down, but it was a simple message. And once he said, the average American has a vocabulary of 600 words, and he said, I'm going to stay within that range. And he did. I mean, you look at those sermons, and, you know, these are... And he even talked more about that. I actually I haven't thought about this for a long time. As he said, I try to use one syllable words. And if you listen to those sermons, and they're short and punchy. And it's like, he, one time he said, I, I, I like to think of my preaching as like firing ammunition. You know, these short, punchy, one syllable words. So anyway, so that was the preaching style, fast, loud, hard. In the beginning, it, it, it tapered off over the years. Um, but an eloquent, not an eloquent preacher, but an effective one. I remember reading in your book, or maybe it was his autobiography or, or something else, where he, you know, as part of his preaching, maybe at the end of his sermon, if he called them that, he would he would invite people to come up, right? And and uh, he would continually say, "We'll wait. I'm waiting." Right? Was that part of? Was that always part of his delivery? That yes, from the very beginning, and it was. Um, uh, very deliberate. And actually that I've, I've thought about this. some, um, and I actually have thought about it a lot is what the old fashioned revivalists would call the altar call. He didn't call it that very much. Uh, he'd say it's time to come forward. And, uh, for an evangelist, that's the payoff. It isn't the money. It's if people don't respond, then there's no point in being an evangelist. It's like being a salesman. Again, if you don't sell brushes, then you're not effective. Well, if people don't respond, then you have failed, frankly. Now, he would not always say that. He would say, God has called me to preach. And regardless of the results, I'm, I'm preaching. But still at a more human level, uh, it was sure. the result, people coming that counted. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Um, later on now, this is mid-20th century, uh, and, and you write... Um, after you know, after he became a prominent national uh, uh, figure, you say that quote Graham fit the idealization, if not idolization, of the post World War II youth culture. Close quote. What did you mean by that, and what were the ramifications? He uh, came to prominence in the late forties as a Youth for Christ speaker, and uh, at that point he was flamboyant and. Uh, uh, he wore bright colored suits and even, uh, at one point, uh, flashing ties, little batteries in the ties, believe it or not. And, you know, lights would flash. I mean, there was all, I mean, it was spectacular and some people would say it was tacky. Uh, he wouldn't, he'd just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm attracting young people. And, uh, and in those meetings, uh, they would do things that he would later on, uh, regret or he looked back at, uh, they would even have a, you know, a, a a dancing, I think it was a dancing bear, uh, or maybe his horse, a dancing horse would come out and say to the horse, uh, you know, how many people are there in the Trinity? 
and the horse would stomp his feet three times. Uh, and this was in the very beginning. Uh, and later on, you know, he would wince and think, oh, my word, you know, but it attracted people. I mean, it worked. He was attracting young people. Um, as, as time went on uh, in, in, the, in the 50s, uh, he, uh, he tried to connect and he brought his message into connection with world events. Now, later on, he would again feel that he had gone too far and he'd back off from that. But in the early years, he talked a lot about communism uh, and other kinds of social trends um, that, he, that he thought made his preaching relevant. And uh, in, in, in that sense, he wasn't preaching precisely to youth anymore, but it, it certainly was a younger crowd, yeah. And, and at this time in American history, there was sort of a, a celebrity culture that had emerged post-World War II. You think of the Kennedy administration as Camelot and things like that. He fit in very well with that. Can you give us your thoughts yeah, on it? Yeah, even more than that, and, and this is, you know, I, I wouldn't want to uh, uh, lay my body on the track for this, but in, in a lot of ways, this was the era of the one-person celebrity per field, one person per field. There's one Elvis, right? Uh, there was one Leonard Bernstein. Uh, there was one Walter Cronkite. And obviously uh, there's so many more in all those fields, but there's one person who seemed to define the conversation and everybody else, the singers, you know, rock and roll singers want to be like Elvis. All right. And so somehow, well, there are reasons, not somehow, but there are very good reasons why Billy moved into that singular position uh, among evangelists and nobody else came close by the early fifties. There was simply no one else who came close. And today we look back at it and we have to kind of say, Billy Graham wasn't always Billy Graham. I mean, there was a time when, you know, he, he failed times when he was younger and he knew it. But by the mid fifties, you know, he, he, he was a singular person. Right. Okay. So now let's move forward maybe a decade or so. And regarding Billy Graham and the civil rights movement, you write this, uh, Grant, quote, Martin Luther King was the absent presence throughout Graham's life, both before and after King's <clears throat> death, close quote. What does the historical record tell us about Billy Graham and Jim Crow racism and the civil rights movement? This as a very broad uh, subject complicated but, but uh, give us a high question. level yeah very good question could talk about that for hours i'll try not to i'll try to be uh, succinct and i'd say that uh, graham's record on civil rights was uh, erratic we do not see linear progress we expect to see a man who started off as a southern segregationist and then ended up very progressive at the end of his life and that's not the way it happened what way it happened is that he did grow up in a strongly segregated society. And it wasn't until he was a young man that it ever occurred to him there was something wrong with that. And he talks about it. It wasn't until actually he got to Wheaton College as a postgraduate in a sense that it ever occurred to him, he said, that um, as he put it in those days, a Negro was my peer. And he said this with regret. He said, I can't believe that that's how I grew up, but I did. I grew up in the South, all right? 
And so this is the, by the late 40s, and by 1952, 53, he had come to the conviction that he would no longer tolerate uh, segregation in his meetings. So he insisted upon integrated meetings, encountered enormous opposition. Uh, he was commonly called a communist uh, traitor, uh, traitor to his race. I mean, you know, he, he took a lot of opposition, it was a courageous position. By the late 50s and into the mid-60s, however, he seemed to step back. And he became um, uh, worried about two things. One, violence in the street, Watts, for example. And he wasn't alone. I mean, Robert Kennedy, you know, was worried too. So he wasn't alone in this, but he, he was growing worried about uh, black power. And so he began to call for law and order. You know, the solution to our problems is not Christ, but well, Christ is part of it, but we certainly need law and order. So in a sense, he's moving backwards in the mid-60s. Um, and then also he becomes very worried later on about um, Martin Luther King's opposition to the Vietnam War. Graham supported it. He supported Nixon in the early days. So there are a couple of reasons. By the early 70s, however, he has a complete turnaround and he comes by the early 70s to be, he, he strongly insists uh, upon uh, colorblindness. Now, today we see that as a problem, I mean, as part of the problem. But in the early, early 70s, that was perceived as a progressive position, absolute colorblindness. In fact, I think in one of his best sermons, where he was actually quite eloquent, was preached in Durban, South Africa in 1973. First integrated meeting since apartheid. And there he insisted. He said Christ was a brown man. He wasn't black. He wasn't white. But the point is he transcends all these colors. It's a kind of colorblindness message. And he held to that to the end of his life. Do we have, uh, we must have record that he interacted with Martin Luther King? He did. A couple uh, times? It, it was not, I, I would say it was an unsteady relationship and in one sense uh these are kind of like you know you know two big german shepherds uh in the ring i mean the, these are two of the most prominent figures in american culture and i think the the relationship was wary not weary but but wary um for both of them graham is an evangelist king is a reformer and they were both some of the other but fundamentally uh their approaches are different and so there's a certain wariness. And there was a, a public cooperation uh, from about 1957 on uh, when Graham invited King to come to his crusade. But there definitely were times after 1957 where Graham drew back from King. King drew away from Graham. I think we can only imagine what would have happened if Graham and King had really worked together. Uh, but the plain, sad, historical truth of it is they didn't. They didn't oppose each other, um, but they didn't work together. With the one exception where in 68, uh, King came out, came out publicly strongly opposing the Vietnam War, as I've mentioned. And, uh, and Graham uh, challenged King quite directly on this point. But um, when when King was assassinated, Graham was very clear that King was one of the, you know, the great moral leaders of the age. Okay, we'll have to think about that uh, and process all that a little bit. Thank you. Yeah. 
Grant, Billy Graham. It is a complicated story. Sure, absolutely. In a lot of ways, we wish that it weren't. Um, but that, that history often isn't. You just have to deal with it as it is. Uh, Grant, Billy Graham set up the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and you write that he originated it to regularize his finances, but that from the outset, it was more than that. It enjoyed providential legitimation, for it handled the disposition of money that had been received providentially, close quote. Would you tell us the role of this organization in what Billy Graham aspired to do and did do? Well, first I'll say the it, it came to be called the BGEA, and then insiders elided uh, the E, and so they just call it the BGA. You hear that all the time. So we'll, we'll say uh, the BGA is understudied. It's one of the most important features of Graham's career, and we don't we have not received a sustained study of it. Uh, you need someone with a business career, really, to look at it because it was an, an extremely well-oiled machine. Um, and the main purpose of it was to handle the finances, to receive the finances, the public accounting, to make sure that there is nothing illegitimate. Graham received a lot of criticism in his life. Some of it was warranted. But the one thing he was never criticized about was finances. And it's because of the BGEA. Totally upfront public. Okay. So the money would come in, usually in small quantities, mom and pop. There's a continual revenue stream. And it would be sent, he would say on the radio program, you know, send your contributions or Cliff Barrows, the associates say, send your contributions to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Then those, those lines, that's all the address you need, just Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, you know, people did uh, by the millions. It's, I think it's worth noting that Graham uh, organization and ministry always survived on small contributions from large numbers of people mom and pop, grandma and grandpa, never survived with big grants. He didn't want big grants. He wanted his contributions. And so that's what the BGA was there for. Okay. You quote Billy Graham uh, as saying, quote here, uh, I intend to go anywhere sponsored by anybody to preach the gospel of Christ. If there are no strings attached to my message, I am sponsored by civic clubs, universities, ministerial associations, and councils of churches all over the world. Then you add, Grant, when his life and words are considered in their entirety, Graham clearly did not mean that correct belief was unimportant, but some items of belief were more important than others. The question was how to work with people of divergent views in the common cause of Christian evangelism. Close quote. How did Graham do this and what were the effects? Almost, uh, well, I won't say from the outset, but uh, certainly by the early 1950s and very clearly by the mid-1950s, uh, he, he would say, I, I'll work with anyone who will work with me. And then there, there were two qualifications. If they don't ask me to change my message, and then he would add, and if they accept the deity of Christ. Well, in practice, he didn't stress the deity of Christ. I mean, he was willing for that to be presupposed he understood that people understood deity of christ in different ways so he didn't make an issue of that uh what he did make an issue of was just don't ask me to change my message and let's talk about christ let's talk about changing the world so he worked with mormons 
Uh, he worked with uh, liberal Protestants and with Catholics, and he tried to work with fundamentalists to his right, and that did not work. Fundamentalists would not work with him, but he tried. And so he, he just tried to open his arms and say, you know, let's have a big tent here because we, we, in a sense, it, it, we, he didn't put it this way, but it was, we've got bigger fish to fry than to fight with each other. And to a remarkable extent, um, he succeeded. He even said, I'll work with Jews. Now, of course, this is tricky. I mean, he's calling people to faith in Christ and then Jews would, couldn't go that far, but they could go with him in his affirmation of God and of morality and patriotism. So he had lots of good relationships, even with Jews. Right. Thank you for that. We are talking with Grant Wacker, Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Christian History at Duke University and author of America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. Listeners, if you have not yet done so, please visit storyofamericanreligion.org and register for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Grant, I think our listeners have great interest, and that's understated, uh, generally in this question, how religion is involved in politics. You dedicate a chapter to investigating Billy Graham's involvement in politics. You write this in that chapter, quote, by virtually all accounts, including otherwise sharply critical ones, Graham proved impervious to the temptations of greed and lust. But political power was another matter, close quote. Tell us, Grant, what we need to know about Graham and American presidents and American politics. Hmm. Uh, I'm amazed by that sentence that I, <laughs> that I wrote. Wow, wow okay, I'll, I'll stand by that. I'm surprised by that. Uh, but I think I got it there right. Um, there's not a trace of sexual impropriety in his, in his life. Uh, and um, as I've said, there's uh, not a trace of uh, financial impropriety. Uh, there is a great deal of evidence, overwhelming evidence, uh, that he fell into partisanship in ways that he would later uh, severely regret. And he admitted that. I mean, he said this, these are my words, but effectively he said, you know, it's like the moth to the flame. He said, I just couldn't stay out of it. And uh, the, the real issue is that politicians gained a lot by their association with him. They gained, let's go back to our word here, legitimation uh, by having their picture on a cover with Billy Graham. They knew perfectly well that there would be millions of people who say, well, you know, this guy is endorsed by Billy Graham. I mean, he must be okay. Uh, so they gained and uh, he gained uh, at the very human level. He would not acknowledge this, but I, I think it's pretty obvious that he enjoyed association with power. Uh, he didn't exercise power himself, except within his organization. It wasn't that he wanted to, you know, be the Secretary of Defense or something like that. But he enjoyed being with people who had power. He enjoyed the association with the, the glamour, the allure of power. So he got something out of it. Um, and then if he were pressed about it, he would admit that he did hang out a lot with famous people and powerful people. And his defense of this was a... Um, the rich need God just as much as the poor. 
the powerful need God just as much as the weak. I mean, why, why not? I mean, you know, they need a pastor and presidents need a pastor. So that was part of it. But then you'd also have the argument that overseas, internationally, people took him and his message more seriously if they saw that he had the ear of the president. And he did. He did have the ear of the president. And it is undeniable that especially overseas, people found that very, very impressive. And again, if uh, the president of the United States listens to Billy Graham, then I should too. Right. What's the list of presidents that he was an unofficial advisor to? Can you give us that and then maybe an anecdote or two uh, of, of him interacting with presidents, whether it's Truman or Nixon or Eisenhower or Reagan? Give us a sense of that. Yeah, uh, he personally met every president of the United States in the course of his life. Uh, one president, the first one uh, that he met was Truman, and the relationship was disastrous. Truman uh, clearly intensely disliked Graham personally. Uh, and uh, and Graham, if Graham disliked Truman, he didn't say so. But uh, there was uh, no compatibility there at all. There, there are reasons for that. Um, but Graham got along with all the other presidents. He was, he was um, I, I think, his closest friend in his whole life, except for his two or three immediate associates. Uh, his closest friend was uh, Lyndon Johnson. And they, they, were, they were what we call pals. They were buddies. There was a camaraderie there. They, they just enjoyed being with each other. And at one point, Johnson said, uh, Billy, uh, consider the White House your motel whenever you're in Washington. You don't need an invitation. Just ring us up and, you know, there'll be a room for you. Uh, so he was very close to Johnson uh, personally. He was close to Richard Nixon, which was probably the most unfortunate thing that ever happened to him. He was entangled in his friendship with Nixon. And uh, he, he, he lost perspective, I think. That's all we can say. Uh, and later he knew that, uh, but he did. He lost perspective with Nixon. After that, he was fairly close with Reagan and with the senior Bush. Uh, these were all personal friends. Uh, what also often isn't noted is that his wife, Ruth, was close to the president's wives. And so it wasn't just one way, but very often that the four would vacation together. That's a whole other story that should sure. needs to be told. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, let's see. You write in the same chapter uh, that over the course of his public ministry, Graham, quote, displayed three distinguishable outlooks towards the American dream, challenging America, embracing America, and transcending America, close quote. Would you elaborate on each briefly? Uh, he, he always, from the beginning to the end, uh, challenged uh, America's misdeeds as a nation. Now, exactly what those misdeeds were changed according to the times. And uh, say in the 1950s, he, he warned Americans about being soft on communism. And uh, uh, in the 1960s, he continued to worry about that, but they were soft on v communism in Vietnam. Now he changed his mind about this. He, 
he uh, he backed off on his support of the Vietnam War. That's another story. But then in the in the 60s, he would talk about materialism and, um, you know, juvenile delinquency and the rise of divorce, uh, such things. Um, and uh, then later on, he, he, he talked about racism and uh, militarism. And by the end of his career, I'd say his central concern with America was militarism. Uh, like Eisenhower, the military industrial complex. Graham said by the 1980s that our, our greatest danger is that we're going to destroy this. We're going to destroy civilization if we keep going, not just America, America and Soviet Union. That's the challenge part. The embrace part is that uh, I would say by the 60s and especially in the 70s, he had uh, grown to become very comfortable with the American way of life. Uh, he was the Grand Marshal of the Rose Parade, for example, in, in 1970. And so here he is, he's in this convertible, you know, in the roses and, uh, the, you know, and, 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 and all the other people that are celebrities and he's waving and he gives every indication that America's a pretty good place. Um, there's not a whole lot that, to draw back from. And I'd say this lasts through the 70s. Um, he becomes, well, there was a, a magazine article in the, an article in the New York Times that called him America's chaplain. He intensely disliked that, but it's true. He, he disliked it because he knew it was true. Okay. Um, by the end of his life, though, I'd say from the 70s, the later 70s and the 80s and 90s, um, he, he took this posture of transcending in which he tried to say the gospel is bigger than us. It's bigger than America. It's bigger than any country. Um, Christ transcends the gospel. One of the lines that he would repeat in those years was that if you hit your wagon to any particular political party, when that party falls, your wagon will fall. And if you want to the gospel to succeed, you've got to unhitch from the political parties from America. And I mean, at one point, he even said, well, I, America should be like more like Canada. He said, Canada doesn't go around trying to police the world. Well, that I had a little bit tongue in cheek there, but, but his larger point is, is that we have a message that's bigger than the nation. Right. Uh, regarding this last point of transcending, I, I noted that you quote him as admitting, quote, I used to make the mistake of almost identifying the kingdom of God with the American way of life, close quote, which is sort of captures that, that sentiment that you, you uh, explained there. Grant, talk to us about Billy Graham and war, peace, and global justice, which you call long and complex. But I think it's important enough to our listeners uh, to get a 30,000-foot level allowed by our time constraints. Um, let's uh, focus on war and peace. Uh, and uh, there, uh, the, the short of it is he moved from a posture of a kind of strident, spread eagle patriotism in the 50s to, uh, as I have said, uh, uh, an advocacy of the mutual disarmament, demilitarization. And uh, it's important to stress mutual. He never wanted the U.S. Um, unilaterally to disarm, uh, but he said we have to work uh, with the Soviet Union. And in, indeed, uh, 
by the 80s, he would say that what the U.S. and the Soviet Union are doing is like two little boys uh, standing in a tub of gasoline and playing with matches. We're going to destroy the world. Now, that's the late Graham. The early Graham was quite different. The early Graham saw communism as the greatest threat. And uh, though he did not call for, uh, well, I was going to say he didn't call for war. He supported the Korean War in the beginning. He supported the Vietnam War uh, in the beginning. Uh, in both wars, he backed off as time went on. But still, he, would, he, he, he felt that uh, communism was a terrible threat militarily, religiously, in every way, and we have to confront it. And, and so there's that strident confrontational side of Graham, but it gradually abated as he grew older. And I, I think the reason he came to have a, a, a more, he was never a pacifist, but the, he had a more pacific view of the world is just that he traveled the world so much. And he, he just came to see so much suffering. A lot of people see it and they don't, it doesn't register. But he saw suffering around the world and, and, it, and it touched him. It changed him. He became a changed man. Thank you. Uh, in, in telling this part of the story in the book, you write this, which I think was a, a fantastic capture of it. Uh, you wrote, Quote, Graham seemed to be hearing the voice of a new Jesus, close quote. Mm -hmm. That's how you put it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Grant, in an absolutely fascinating and enlightening part of your book, you state this, quote, the pastor as evangelist needed an audience, which is to say he needed an audience in order to be who he was. The pastor and the audience created each other, close quote. What can you tell us about why the people came, who they were, the conversion process at his events, at his crusades, and why they committed while there. From the outside, and here I drop on the letters that he, that people wrote to him afterwards. So this isn't just speculation. It's, it's listening to the letters. And um, from the outside, many of them would talk about how uh, they... They, they came because there was something amiss in their lives. And they usually couldn't put their finger on it. Um, my life is just off the rails. And sometimes in very uh, specific ways, I've fallen into crime, for example, or adultery, or this or that. But, but more often, it was a sen just a general sense that life has lost its meaning. And then Graham preached about a second chance. In Christ, you know, you come to Christ and you can start over. And again and again, this is what they would talk about is that second chance. Now, that's at the spiritual level. I think we can back off of, we can analyze that a little more as historians. And we can say that it was also was a spectacular event in the precise sense of that. That it was exciting. Graham comes to town. You know, tens of thousands of people come to the meetings, all buses are going to town. So there's all this advertising all around town, billboards, bumper stickers, people are talking about it. And so then you go to a meeting and there's all the music and the crowds. And, you know, so there's all of this, it's an event. I went to a grand meeting myself when I was only 12 years old. It's the only time I've ever been to a grand meeting, 
12 years old, but I still remember it. What I remember about it, A, is that Graham was a very funny preacher. I remember, actually, I can remember one of the jokes he told, and uh, I don't remember anything else about the sermon. But what I I was a kid, grew up in a little town in Missouri. What was the joke? Oh, well, <laughs> it's probably, it won't be funny if I tell it, but uh, he, he was talking about puppy lung. And he said, uh, parents uh, never take puppy love. He's talking about young teenagers. And he said, parents never take puppy love uh, seriously, but it's extremely real to the puppy. Okay, well, they're just gales of laughter at this. And uh, it doesn't come off all that great when I tell them all these years later. But in the context of the, of the setting, it was, it was funny. Thank but you. he was very witty and told a lot of jokes. And uh, sometimes just straight up jokes, self-deprecating jokes. He was a master of self-deprecating humor. And, of course, when you analyze that, that only works if you if you know that you're very famous and powerful. If you don't have, you know, accomplishments behind you, then a self-deprecating joke isn't a joke. But he could joke about himself, and people like that. And, and it was genuine. I think, I think he really did see his own uh, career as amazing himself as much as anyone else how did this happen i'm just a country kid so he, he told jokes about himself and uh people laughed about it so that that was uh, part of the appeal his humor the music the crowds and then when people come forward they would repeatedly talk about a new life they had found and, and so what was the conversion process to for lack of a better word, maybe that's not the right word, but at the at the crusade, what happened physically when somebody was converted, and then why and why did they do it? What did they have to do? This too is a, it's a very important process, and we we haven't studied it enough. Uh, it can be analyzed. You know, religious studies scholars uh, have analyzed it some, but not enough. Typically, uh, typically. He, he would come to the end of a sermon and he would ask people to make a commitment to Christ. And he more than that, he would say, I, I want you to stand up and walk to the front. Now, this is a stroke of genius. He didn't invent this, but he stressed it. You need to stand up and walk to the front. In other words, it isn't it doesn't count if you just have a conversion in your heart. And it really doesn't count if you just sort of, you know, put your finger up. What you need to do is make a palpable, visible movement. So what does that do? Well, it solidifies it in your own life. And it solidifies it in the eyes of people around you. And so you're standing up, you're telling people around, I need something. And he understood that. So people then walk to the front and, uh, he would offer a short prayer, and then there are counselors. Now, there are many counselors, and sometimes there are as many counselors as there were converts. He never called them converts. He called them inquirers, okay? But there are as many counselors as inquirers. And the idea was, in fact, that for every inquirer, there would be a counselor. And the counselor would uh, offer a, a small gospel of John, and a decision card. Uh, people could write down their name, phone number. And then in principle, the, later on, the counselor would contact the inquirer and say, how's it going? You know, have you found a church? And there again, Graham was, was shrewd. It isn't good enough 
just to come forward and even sign a card. That's not good enough. What you need to do is then affiliate with a church. Uh, I mentioned Jews earlier. He even, he even said quietly, affiliate with a synagogue if you're Jewish. But that, that wasn't a big part. But, but the point is you need to make a, a concrete affiliation. And so this, this is the process. And, and I look at it and I think about it. And what's striking about the whole process is the stress upon making things visible and palpable. Where you can measure it. Okay. Thank you. That that paints a great picture for us. Um, let's see. You mentioned letters. I, I in the book you say uh, this about the letters that came and the letters that were written by him in response. That quote, they flowed as an unending river from all parts of the world. Close quote. Uh, despite admitting in your book that letters to him and from him merit a book themselves, would you be willing to paint the picture here perhaps as small as time allow you know, we don't have a lot of time, but give us a sense of this letter phenomenon. If I were ever to write another book about Graham, I'm not, I promise you, but, uh, but if I were ever to do that, uh, I would write it about the letters. I think that's, a, actually, I think that's the single most important part of studying who Billy Graham was. Because who he was, was entirely a product of how he connected with people. And we don't know how he connected people until they, they tell us. And they did. And they told us in the letters. Uh, as I said, they came in by the millions. We don't know how many. They, they were, most of them were discarded. But a few thousands have survived. And I've sampled them systematically. And uh, I would say the majority of the letters uh, simply express thanks to Graham coming to town, preaching a message that meant a lot to me. Uh, a large minority of the letters talked about uh, a conversion of some sort, not usually in any dramatic sense. These, these are not Pentecostal meetings, but rather, the, you know, I, I, I changed my life. I came to Christ. I professed faith. So this would be a large minority of the letters. Um, other strains that you get within the letters uh, are people who, who talked about very some very serious misdeeds, whether you think of them as sins or crimes, um, a straying, a lot of letters referring to uh, adultery, and um, less of them actually referring to fornication, but a striking number of them uh, referred to adultery and to addictions. A uh, problem with alcohol, it would be a uh, prominent. Um, so, you know, it's a mix. Now, what is fascinating to me, why are they sending these to Graham? They know he's not going to read them. I mean, he's getting millions of letters. It's like writing the president of the United States. So why? And many of the letters are long and they're detailed and they're handwritten. So why do people do this? Um, it, I, it's kind of a confessional. Uh, it's a Protestant version of a Catholic confessional, I think. Um, yeah, but there, there are a lot of possible reasons, but clearly people found a lot of meaning just in the act of writing the letters. Well, if you're not going to write the book, hopefully somebody listening will yeah, decide. I hope so. Maybe you, Chris. That's Maybe me. For you. Okay, thank you. Um, here as we wind down, a few more questions. As you as you write about his identity in the book, how Graham viewed himself, on the one hand, you write this, 
quote, though hardly anyone called Graham vain, flashes of vanity abounded, close quote. And then the other side of the coin, uh, quote, Graham's personal humility seemed to atone for the excesses of self-promotion, close quote. Would you help us understand what Billy Graham thought of Billy Graham? It's one of the, now that's a wonderful question. And um, it's one of the most complicated uh, features of his career. Uh, extremely ambitious uh, and this, the obvious sense that he just worked hard, but in the obvious sense that he, he, he wanted to promote himself and uh, he, he was never shy about promoting himself. Um, at the other time, but at the same time, he was a deeply humble man and everybody who was around him and me too. I mean, when I, I had four uh, extended visits with him and each time I came away, just kind of overwhelmed by this personal humility. And I, the, insofar as I can explain it, I would say it was his sense that God had called him to a mission and that he was good at it. But it's always God has called right. me, God has enabled me. And actually it's the sense that if I don't do what I'm called to do, then I have failed God. And so uh, he never, uh, you know, he, 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 he never put it exactly this way, but it was like an Olympic runner, uh, like the Eric Liddell, uh, you know, line, uh, God made me fast and God takes pleasure in watching me run. And I think this was it. Um, there's nothing in it myself. I'm just a kid from, from the farm. Keeps He said that over and over. I'm just a farm kid. And he'd say, I'm not, you know, I'm not an academic. I'm probably not all that smart. I mean, you know, nothing like that. But he said, God gave me a job and I'm good at doing that job. Okay. Fair enough. Well, well explained. Um, I guess here at the end, uh, the last question uh, would be this. Um so here we are, 2020, almost 21. Uh, he has been dead several years uh, in his prime. It's been uh, several decades. Uh, so he is no longer with us. Um, obviously, the historical record is clear. He had an effect on America. Uh, he had an effect on Americans. Um, he, uh, he occupies a very uh, particular place in American history uh, and in American religious history. From your vantage point now, Grant, as a, an expert on him, uh, in the scholarly sense, uh, would you share any lessons or takeaways from this book, either in terms of important historical transformations that you have charted over American history in regards to religion and religious people acting in it, or in terms of helping us better understand the present moment? In answering this, I, I reveal a certain, um, uh, I suppose, political orientation of my own in, the, in this sense that I, I think that what we, we learned, number one from Graham, is um, the dangers of political entanglement. Um, and uh, he became aware of it and strongly regretted it. And I, I think that's a message that 
uh, is worth uh, noting. And he, he 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 withdrew from the Christian right. He he never was part of it. He opposed, and he said, I, "I will not support it because politics, explicit partisan politics, does not belong in the pulpit." So I would say, for me anyway, that's one lesson: is the danger of explicit partisan entanglement uh, with with the church. A um, second lesson, though, is actually uh, comes from this very the, the penultimate question you asked about the relation of ambition and humility, and that is uh, in, in in Graham we see a man of, of deep personal humility, but one who also felt that he had a call, and humility was no excuse for not fulfilling that call. You do the job uh, that God has called you to do. Maybe there's one more, and that is, I would say, uh, he understood the person, the importance of personal probity, um, sexual fidelity with his wife, financial integrity, um, and honesty uh, with, you know, within as much as possible. And the person who spoke that much sometimes, you know, he, you know, he, he would overstate what he what he meant to say, but but with, with within reason, the conviction of the necessity of telling the truth. Uh, and then personal holiness. I mean, he took very, very seriously personal devotions, reading Bible, prayer. All of these things were, were part of his conviction that it matters how the evangelist lives. He never said this, but I would say, you know, there was a TV commercial that said, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Graham felt that was absolutely wrong. What happens in Las Vegas does not stay in Las Vegas. It does matter how how the individual lives. Okay, thank you. And I guess I'll have one last personal question. Um, do we know anything from the historical record about how he um, shouldered the burdens of what he learned as America's pastor? I'm thinking specifically of the letters. He didn't read them, as you say, but certainly he knew people were writing him. Certainly he knew who he was addressing and what sort of things people were coming to the altar with, right? That the burden of a pastor, although he didn't pastor his own church and get to know people intimately, in some senses perhaps he knew more of human suffering because of his immense reach. Is there anything in the historical record that tells us how he shouldered those burdens? Well, he sampled the letter, certainly as far as humanly possible. I mean, for many years, they came in in semi-trucks each day. So all you can do is sample. And actually, his wife, who's a very important part of his story, Ruth Bell Graham, and she, she read and sampled the letters, too. So in that sense, uh, uh, he, he, he came to know uh, about, about the suffering. Um, but also, uh, uh, though Billy worked hard, um, he also uh, was uh, very careful about vacations. This may surprise us. Uh, he spent a lot of time uh, sunning himself, you know, on beaches. He loved beaches and just, you know, getting a suntan. And I want to stress, I mean, he worked hard and yet he knew how to pace himself. So uh, he, he understood the importance of a weekend, the importance of a vacation. He understood the meaning of a sabbatical. And so a lot like Ronald Reagan in this sense, where we read that Reagan was very strict about, you know, his personal recreation, you know, exercise and all this. Well, Graham was too. He was a, a calisthenics exercise nut, we would say. And so Graham knew how to balance, you know, work with play and exercise. Uh, 
Um, okay. And I think that that helps. Okay, fair enough. We've been talking with Grant Wacker, Gilbert T. Rowe, Professor Emeritus of Christian History at Duke University and author of America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. Here at the conclusion of this episode, we trust that listeners understand more about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion and have a deeper appreciation of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States seeing to its protection as an indispensable part of the fragile American experiment in self-government. Don't forget to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and register for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Grant, thank you so much for being with us and doing the hard work of writing a book that helps us all understand America better. Right. That's wonderful questions, Chris. So thank you so much. Religion in the American Experience is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Hello, this is Chris Stevenson, host of the podcast series, Religion in the American Experience. Due to the events of last week at the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C., we will not publish, as we usually do, our normally scheduled episode on Monday, January 18th. Instead, over the next two weeks, we will convene a panel of American religious history scholars to discuss how the history of religion and politics in the United States can help us better understand and react to the storming of the Capitol on January 6, 2021. The recording of this discussion will be released Monday, January 25th on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. I look forward to meeting you then.